Welcome to Broadway's Backbone with Brad Bradley, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of the ensemble, the chorus of dancers, singers, and actors that are the foundation of every Broadway musical. These often unsung gypsies are the hardest working people on the boards and are, well, Broadway's backbone. Welcome to episode 59. My very special guest is Andy Blankenbuehler. Currently, Andy has three shows running on Broadway, Bandstand, for which he most recently won the 2017 Tony Award for Best Choreography. Hamilton, for which he won the 2016 Tony Award for Best Choreography. And Cats. Other Broadway credits include In the Heights, Tony Award, Best Choreography, Bring It On, 9 to 5, People in the Picture, The Apple Tree, and Annie. Other theatrical work include Fly, The Wiz, The National Tour of Joseph, and coming up, a new musical called Only Gold. Television credits include Dirty Dancing, So You Think You Can Dance, and Sesame Street. Mr. Blankenbuehler has danced on Broadway in Fosse, Contact, Man of La Mancha, Saturday Night Fever, Steel Pier, Big, and Guys and Dolls. He's married to his lovely wife, Ellie, and two children, Luca and Sophia. So I'm sitting here with uh, Andy Blankenbuehler, and we're up in Harlem in your home. So. How are you today? I'm great. I mean, it's been a it's been a crazy year and a crazy stretch of six months opening a bandstand, which happened kind of fast and furious because we knew we wanted to do it, but we were waiting for theater, and so like work had stopped while we were waiting for theater, and so then that the last five six months of production were really fast. We had to design a set really fast and had to re-choreograph really fast, and but it was exciting and it was it's hard to direct and choreograph, which I'm sure we'll talk about. <laughs> and so I was um, living in a blur for a while, and the show opened about almost like three four weeks ago, and now it's sort of like the thick of like award season and press and exciting things that are become part of a career that you didn't know were going to be part of your career, like speaking speaking in public and being a mediator for meetings that have to do with, you know, designs or set itinerary, uh, tour itineraries. or So that's sort of where I'm at right now is, is uh, not being creative. Like there's a huge weight off my shoulders right now because I don't have to make anything. <laughs> um, so even though I'm working pretty much full time still, like cleaning Hamilton or whatever it is, or having meetings for Bandstand, we just found out today we're gonna yesterday we're gonna perform on the Tonys. That's fantastic. Yeah. So like all those things take a lot of time, but it's really nice not to be in rehearsal. Because last year during a crazy Hamilton award season, I was already in rehearsal for Cats. And, and so like I would literally like leave on my lunch break to go to like a press event or, and it, I couldn't enjoy either one. I couldn't enjoy the rehearsal and I couldn't enjoy the Tony madness of Hamilton because I was rushing yeah. back and forth and eating, you know, on the kind bars on the run in a subway. <laughs> um, so that's sort of where I'm at. I'm trying to take care of my body a little bit now because I feel like I ran a marathon. Yes. And so it's like a slow recouping process mentally and physically. It's good, but it's all good. It's really good. You have three shows running on Broadway right now, which yeah, it's is... it's like an unbelievable thing. Yes, it, it really is. Like, that's back in the George M. type of times, to have more than one show. You know, it's interesting. that The, the thing that I, maybe that I'm most proud of is that they're such big shows. There's such so much dancing in them. Yes. Like, I bit off huge bites and, and was very aggressive with all three. And I'm so I'm proud of that. And stylistically, they're very different, and yet... They have a trademark on them, I think, that, that people recognize. It's interesting, you know, there's a lot of choreographers who 
have been fortunate to have a lot of shows at the same time, like Casey and Sergio and and Stro and and so it's like it's just an it's an amazing thing to ever be in a Broadway show. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know what I mean. Like every time I go into the theater, I, I don't. I ne- it never gets old, and I'm never jaded about it. And the other thing that's really special is like Hamilton is obviously new and um, gutsy and, and and contemporary. And Bandstand is a little of both worlds because it feels like a classic piece of theater, but it moves like a contemporary piece of theater, which I'm proud of. But to be involved with Cats is really cool too, because that's a big reason that I'm even here today. Mm. As a teenager, I was so inspired by it, and it just revolutionized everything for the dancer, I think, you know, that on top of Chorus Line. And so to be in the room with those people was like an amazing step. So where are you originally from, and how did you get started? I grew up in Cincinnati. And I was in a very artistic family. My sisters danced. We all took music class. We all took art class. And my parents were very artistically savvy. My father worked a lot in the theater, community theater and high school theaters and college theaters, but had a different career in banking. And they, they never really pushed me, but they opened a lot of doors for me. And I started dancing when I was three. And I was always, I guess, sort of good at it. My brain was good at it. Like my mathematic brain was good at it remembering steps and remembering patterns and remembering rhythms. Um, but I was never really passionate about it. I was also always the only boy. And so mm. I didn't feel comfortable. It, it wasn't a place that had a sporting mentality. Like it didn't feel like I was cool. It didn't feel like it was social yet. And then when I was a teenager, it changed a little bit because I started doing theater in high school, which was totally um, social. Like I really loved the people there. There were people who wore their emotions on their sleeve. And so we all were all growing up very fast. And we were all good at it, actually, to tell you the truth. Like, it was a very good high school theater department, many of whom I'm working with right now in bandstand. And I have a... Really? Yeah, like, I met the composer's bandstand in high school. And in the vocal arranger, we went from first grade through high school together. Oh, that's amazing. And, like, the standby for Grizabella up in Cats, she she did plays with me in high school. Next door to me in Come From Away, another girl who graduated with me in high school... Like, in, uh, like, there's wow. so many. The girl down the street, uh, Sunday in the Park with George, was choreographed by a graduate of my high school. Really? This is theater. A, that's a, a crazy, great high school, yeah. It's a crazy thing. But we were an all-boys school, um, and so all those girls came from other schools, uh, but we were all in the theater family. Right. Because there was no theater during the day. It was only extracurricular. Um, and it was at that same time I also started competing in dance competitions, mm. which is a little different than it was it is now. I mean, that was the early stages of dance competitions. But all of a sudden, it felt I needed that competitive edge. I needed to, sh- to have the determination to win, or the determination to be my best, rather, and the determination to try to show something or prove something. I needed that sporting element. Um, and all of a sudden, then I had a determination that became like a snowball going down a hill. And I, I was going to go to college for architecture. I went to a college prep school and so that, that was my high school was like 100% graduation rate into mm. college. And so I never really analyzed it much, but I always built with blocks. I always built with Legos. So I th- my parents and I always had it in our heads that I was going to be an architect. And you said you, you collected, you read architectural magazines on the plane. Yeah, so. I, uh, I read, I, I, I love design. I love interior design. I love I love to look at buildings, and I especially now look, love to look at paintings. And so I was accepted into college as an architecture major, and I had this foolish idea that I could like go to a six-year program and then dance after that. <laughs> and then I was like, that's ridiculous, first of all. But also then I never, never really sunk in that architecture is so mathematic. 
I wanted it to be artistic, mm. but it was really mathematic. So then at the last second, I tried to find, and I did find a dance school to go to. I went to SNU in Dallas, Southern Methodist University. They, they accepted me like at the end of my senior year, like past all the deadlines, they accepted me. And I went there for a year and it was great, but I was too impatient, so I, I left. I, in high school, I worked at Kings Island theme park. And then after my freshman year in college, I worked at Disney World, and then I kept oh, wow. working for Disney World, and I went to Tokyo. I went to Tokyo Disneyland when I was 19, and I lived in Tokyo for a year, and then I moved to New York City when I was 20, and just dove in and met the right people like very quickly, and became sort of in the group with like Robbie Marshall and Kathleen Marshall, who then they introduced me to Scott Ellis and Strowman, and it, so it sort of it, one connection built to the next connection, which was great. And then I had random meetings, like me working with um, like the, the, with Fosse. Like I didn't know anybody in that that grouping, but like it was like a one-off. But then I would go back and do another show with Strowman. That's right. where we met and yeah. here, and and so it was great. I mean, performing was really great, and I loved it. And do you want me to talk about my transition? Yeah, absolutely. But your Broadway debut was Guys and Dolls. Guys and Dolls, 92. And, and that was Chris Chadman? Yeah. And I, you know, I took Chris's class a lot with Susie Meisner and all these Carlos Lopez, all these amazing people. And I had a humongous admiration for him. Like, I felt like I could dance his stuff really well. I felt like my mind thought, like, he, he was even more sort of staccato than I am. Mm. But it worked. His body was my body, like we had the same body type, yeah. and so his choreography worked pretty well on me. It was a humongous audition, it was the biggest audition I'd ever been to. There was like 500 men. Oh my gosh. It was crazy. And I was in, and he used to line people up, so if you were in the first two rows, you know you were getting the show at the end of the callback. And I was in the third row, so I knew I wasn't getting the show, and literally I got off of the tour, like they cast the tour right after it. Oh. And so I did the tour with an amazing ensemble. It was me, Sergio Trujillo, Chris Catelli, Jack Hayes, Jerome Vavona, Darren Lee. Like it was an unbelievable group wow. of dancers. And then great women too. That's where I, my dance partner was Elisa Don Cave, who's now like the best stage manager on Broadway. So Mary McLeod, yeah. like great people. So I toured for a year and a half, saw the world, which was great. And then they moved me um, from that company into the Broadway company. So I did that and it was really amazing. I didn't like coming into a show that was already two years in or mm. a year and a half in. I had this fire that I didn't always see, or see around me. And it's not so much a criticism of them. It was more like I, I wanted, I, I was starting to realize as a performer and as a choreographer that I was wanted the fresh product like first-hand information, set yourself on fire and go. Yeah. And a couple months in, like I was ready for the next fire to be lit. And so to be in that environment was a little bit different, but I mean, I was making my Broadway debut, so it was unbelievable. Yeah. But then I got hurt uh, like four months later, three months later, four months later, and um, I herniated two discs in my back, and I was out for a year and a half. Really? And so it was hard because I immediately got all these other Broadway offers, because when I was doing Guys and Dolls, I was auditioning for everything. Yeah. And then I had to pass on all these Broadway shows, and, and it, was, it was very hard. Like yeah. My impatient self didn't understand any of that. But it was an amazing, it was an amazing Broadway debut. And then when I came back from my injury, the first thing I did was I went on the road with Andrew Lloyd Webber and did his concert, Music of the Night. That opened up a whole different side of my career, because I always sang a lot. Yeah. But that, I don't know, it just, it was a really great thing. And I, my dance partner was Nancy LaManager, who's one of my best friends. Oh, yeah, I love her. And, and so that was great for us. And so it was, a, it was a wonderful time. And then I jumped back into the New York scene right after that. Right. Well, I know when we met on Steel Pier, I love that you could just talk to Greg Mitchell all the time because he was so intimidating. The thing I learned about him is that as an ensemble performer, you can make choices and you mm -hmm. don't have to blend in. Mm -hmm. So do you like it in the audition process and rehearsal process when 
dancers make choices. Yeah, you know what, it's, it's, it's interesting. I feel like I am not, I do not have a core mentality. I don't have a chorus mentality. Like I, I, I would probably shoot myself if I ever, ever had to like quarter for the Rockettes. Mm. I love the Rockettes, right. but I would not be <laughs> able to do it. Like a, a, the dance ensemble in like 42nd Street, I would not be able to do it choreographically or as a performer. I'm of the belief that the ensemble has to be an ensemble of individuals that are all dynamically different, not just shapes and sizes and personalities, but like it has to have a dynamic energy to it. I mean, and I'm sure we'll talk about like the ensemble as a whole, because I think the ensemble is the lens that the story is told mm. through. And so there's a tremendous power when there's all these differences in the ensemble that then tell the same story. It's, no, it's exactly the same as an orchestration in an orchestra. Oh, wow. So like in an orchestra, you might have 20 people telling the same musical story. It's the same melody line. It's the same beginning, middle, end. But there's 20 different ones. There's a woodblock, there's a bassoon, there's a trumpet. They each have a different temperament. And at different times in the song, they'll go to different places. Like the woodwinds might play dissonant chords while the trumpet plays the melody. But the dissonant chords are what is building the tension for the melody to eventually soar. So they're both necessary. And then eventually, as we all know, like songs go unison. Mm -hmm. And so dances go unison and, and pieces of theater go unison. So like at the end of like the Battle of Yorktown and Hamilton, the reason it's so moving is because there was never a time in the show where everybody was doing the same thing. Because you got to know, oh, that guy's a hothead. That guy's an intellectual. That guy doesn't want to participate. That guy's this. That girl is that. And then literally they're singing different things, they're dancing different things, they're never facing front. There's only like three moments in all of Hamilton where they face front. And then at the Battle, the battle of Yorktown at the end, they all turn front at the exact same time, they all do the exact same thing, they all sing the exact same thing. And it's, you know, 50 minutes into the show, yeah. an hour into the show. But all of a sudden you have the feeling of a country acquiring independence. There's, that, that's the melody line right there. That's the, that's the melody of the first act. And for 55 minutes, some people were playing dissident notes, some people were only dancing on the woodblock, some, and, and then it eventually comes together. So that was the long way around saying, I agree with Greg and I learned a lot during that time, especially in Fosse, about like, the individuality strengthens the piece. It actually, the individuality actually strengthens the unison, mm. which is your emotional narrative line. And and it also, it just the nuts and bolts of it, it makes people's job more enjoyable. Like if I know I can be my best self, then I'm gonna lay into it more. I'm gonna give more weight to my job and I'm gonna enjoy it eight times a week better and the performances are gonna be better eight times a week. Having said all that, I feel like I want to have a vision when I choreograph and direct and eventually write that my vision is going to be specific. And so there's still an expectation that the cast goes along with me in the vision. And there has to be a respect and an even-keeled sort of ness about it all that says, I'm going to be selfless right here, knowing that myself matters over there. Mm. So that there's some times where I have to lift a table or I have to dance in unison <laughs> or I have to freeze in all fours for two minutes because it's serving a bigger picture. But those bigger pictures have been earned by each person's moment of individuality. And, you know, many times when I was performing, I wanted to feel more integral than I was. And, and I felt I would move a chair 
if it made the story more emotional. But I don't need to do six fan kicks with everybody else if it's not accomplishing something. Yeah. And in that way, like Stephen Hoggett's work is so impressive and inspiring because that's exactly what he does. The littlest gesture is great storytelling. Yeah. And so in that way, I also have a lot of transparency with my casts now. Like I'll say to them, I don't want the audience to look at you in this moment. Oh, but no. but your everyone's tension in this moment is what's going to make it work. Like Hurricane in Hamilton is a perfect example. Yeah. Like the tension that surrounds Hamilton makes his emotional journey really poignant. But as soon as somebody doesn't take it seriously on the sides, the tension falls, and and so they they need to know. And and I really kind of quiz people now when I meet them and audition them about to see if they can follow me intellectually. Like, can, can we have a real conversation so they understand the building blocks, but also can they be selfless to a bigger vision with everybody trusting that I also appreciate the individuality more than they can imagine? It's complicated. No, it is complicated. And it's, it, you want smart answers, which is... Yeah. The fact that you consider dancers smart is yeah. very impressive. Well, it's, no, and it's, it's all theories of architecture also. Like, I was at Radio City yesterday. I was at the Rainbow Room yesterday. So oh. part of the Rainbow Room, it's, it's so high in the air. It's all glass windows. The, the, but you're, before you ever get upstairs, the feeling you get in the lobby transports you. The feeling you get in the elevator transports you. You're walking down the hallway, and the inlaid marble transports you. All those things are contributing... Mm to a bigger idea than you go into the rainbow room and there's those windows. Like it's one thing that builds up and builds up and builds up and builds up. And, and a musical is no different than mm. that. Like there are times where I need the marble floor to be shined in order for the windows to have a payoff later. And, and, and so there's a lot of detail and there's a lot of forethought that has to happen from everybody. Yeah, I like that. At the reunion the other night, Stro was making a toast to a lot of people who weren't there. And she jokingly said that it was her egg dance that she set on you that inspired you to be a choreographer. <laughs> She's like, I'm taking credit for his success with my egg dance. During that time, both of us had a huge tragedy. Both of us lost our sisters. Yeah. How has that formed you as a person, as an artist? Because I know for me, it's, it's really become part of who I am. I mean, it's complicated. I mean, I, I was never emotionally, I think I was always sort of on my feet emotionally, but I was also always used to distance. Like mm. I left home early. I was very much in my own world very early. And so distance between people was easier for me to handle until I had got married and had kids. Now I can't handle any distance at all. Mm. But it was, my sister passed away when I was 25 and it was, really hard but literally I was on the road mm. and literally I was doing a show that captivated me and so I had an instant distraction so I don't know if that was good or bad it was good because I bounced back quickly but it was kind of bad because I bounced back quickly people need a process and just like on stage if you're robbed of part of your process there's going to be a payback later yeah. and so like I, I don't know that I grieved in the way that maybe I should have but I took a lot of things more seriously which was good I felt, I always feel like I felt things deeply, but that really got magnified. Yeah, I agree. It, it, got, it really got magnified. And it's, it's hard for me now because I, I you know, the, 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 the equal tragedy for me was that when I was working on Hamilton, well, before Hamilton really, my daughter was diagnosed with cancer. And so it was a very similar journey of being afraid of lo losing things and also an instant appreciation for what's not lost. You know, one thing that stayed with me with my, with my sister 
My sister, I got the phone call that my sister passed away about a minute and a half before I had to go on stage in the middle of the show oh to God. do a solo. Like in this, there would have been, I, I could have not gone on stage yeah. easily and they would have played it. It would have been fine. But I, f I felt that to, for me to walk out of the theater on my feet, I actually had to do it so that I could be on my feet and not a total have a, totally have a breakdown. And because it, it, was an, it was a tragic accident, so there was no warning. Um, and I stood backstage, and what I always did is I was always stand in releve right before I went on stage, because I always warmed up in a really grounded way. Um, and sometimes I couldn't find my balance, because I, I warmed up as an athlete rather than being on the balls mm. of my feet. And, and so I would push into releve in the wings, and there was this light cue right before I went on where the spotlight would cut through, and you could always see the light in the air. You could always see, like it was almost like a solid mass. And, I, and it, that instantly, as of that moment, became synonymous with my sister's presence in my life, but also the idea that people are watching over us, the, people, the idea that there's bigger things happening. So literally every day from then on out, I would balance in, in, in releve, in the wings, I'd stare at the light, and I'd feel a connection with my sister, I would feel a, a connection to something just bigger. And, and so it's like being in the theater and lighting a show with a lighting designer mm. and staring at lights for hours and hours and hours. There's something very um, soothing to me about that. Like I do feel like A, I'm building something important, but B, I feel like I'm channeling, it's not just my sister, but I'm channeling something that has tremendous depth. It's like if you close your eyes and just listen to music, do you see shapes? What do you see? Do you see light? It's kind of the same thing, that, that even though something is invisible, it's not invisible. It's moving you in really deep ways. So that was sort of the long and short of that. It was, you know, in, in my, my, my family, all, all bounces back in different ways. And in many ways, I'm sure my, I know my parents are still grieving. Oh, yeah. You know, I think everybody is, is fairly healthy. So I'm, I'm thankful that everybody has done well. Um, my sister, my other sister, had young kids at the time, so that helped everybody. That that always helps. Yeah, I know my uh, niece and nephew always hear about their aunt Katie, who's an angel. Yeah. It's it's interesting yeah. when you have to yeah. deal with kids and you talk about someone yeah. who's dead. Yeah, it was it was interesting from when my kids were young because I was very reluctant to talk about it because I was afraid my daughter was going to die. Like, I, oh yeah, and and so I didn't. There was many years I didn't really talk about my sister because. I didn't want to have to explain it to them in a way that would make either my son or my daughter fear that that might happen to, to Sophia. And, and, and so that's an interesting thing. And my daughter's actually tremendously grounded about it. Like she, part of it is just because she's just, when, when something happens to you so younger than you're able to analyze, you just accept it. Yeah. Like she would be in clinic with other kids who the next week wouldn't be there. And it would destroy my wife to see another child pass away. Oh, I bet. But, but Sophia didn't, wasn't impacted the same way because she didn't really understand the loss. But she was able to understand that, yeah, some people die, that's what happens. And so it's a, it was an interesting transition, I think. Wow, you mentioned music being healing. I know, uh, is it Ennio Marconi? You introduced yeah. me to him. Yeah. And actually, the, when I have it, my intro music, it's actually uh, from Cinema Paradiso. That, yeah. So interesting that yeah. you suggested that, that music to me yeah. back in the day. Yeah. But also, George Michael always makes me think of you, because that was... Oh, that was you. funny. I was so into that in the mid-90s. Oh, me too. It was like you walked into your class, which uh, 
back when I loved taking class, your yeah. class was one of the best classes yeah, to take. Thanks. And uh, we warmed up to freedom. Yeah. Was that the beginning of you like saying, I'm teaching, I'm choreographing, is that? Well, you know, it's so funny. There was a, a girl in Steel Pier, and I remember one day I said, oh yeah, I, I wanna teach a class, I wanna teach a class. And she looked at me, because be, until you admit that you have like these creative things that are happening that people don't see. Yeah. Like people just don't know. And so she's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, I want to, I want to choreograph. I want to teach. And she looked at me, she shook her head. She was like, really? Like, what do you have to offer? <laughs> <laughs> but, but I always taught a lot when I was younger and even before Still Pier. And then right around Still Pier is when I, I knew I wanted to get a class started at Broadway Dance Center. And I did start one right before, uh, I, I got a full-time slot at BDC right before Fosse. And then really I taught full-time on Tuesdays and Thursdays eight, while I was doing eight shows a week for like six years. Like all the way through my last show, Man of La Mancha, I was always teaching Tuesdays and Thursdays. And it was an exhausting thing because you have to prep your class. Yeah. And so, you know, I could only get free dance studio time at Broadway Dance Center like nine in the morning. So I'd finish my show and get up to the ass crack of dawn and then like be at Broadway Dance Center with people peeking in the window, haven't eaten breakfast, haven't warmed up, like trying to choreograph. And that was the beginnings of me understanding that I can't work like that. Mm. That I have to work slowly that sometimes a piece of choreography is about me tearing out a hundred, you know, fashion magazine pictures to understand the character before I can even start the choreography. And back then I used to start the choreography. And the benefit of teaching classes, you can pick the best piece of music ever that inspires you. As opposed to when you're doing a musical, you have to work from the inside of the story out. And, and so it's not about the greatest songs of all time. You don't often get to choreograph to the world's greatest pieces of music. Right. Like you do when you're a teacher, I can say, oh, I want to choreograph to Benny Goodman Sing 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 today. Like how many shows does the composer write Sing Sing Sing? Yeah. You know? And so I've been very, very lucky. Like Bandstand is amazing music in Hamilton, of course. And, yeah. And so, but on the way, you don't always have that luxury. You're choreographing a lot of things that don't work yet, actually, artistically and you have to fail at it choreographically to explain this scene shouldn't exist or this dance shouldn't exist, yeah. you know. But I did, I taught a lot and I, I, I loved teaching and it, and it helped me um, own myself a little bit. I used to apologize all the time. Like, oh, I don't know if this section's gonna work, but okay, I'm, you start on your right foot. Like I did that for years. And then, then I stopped apologizing because it was like a, like a Pied Piper thing. People were really into what I was doing. And so it gave me confidence because I was ultimately gonna as we all do, lack confidence so much than when you're on a different platform. Right. You know, when I'm starting to choreograph big shows, you have a whole different kind of insecurity. I remember reading, I, I've read a lot about artists, and when I read, read a book about Van Gogh, like he would paint the same tree, like a hundred, the same branch, like a hundred times. Really? So that he could then paint the tree. Like, he wouldn't try to paint the tree. Like, I was just trying to paint trees. Yeah. And he would paint leaves until he could paint a leaf perfectly. And you know, he would do a, it's like a study. He would yeah. do a study. And, and in a way, dance class was like that. Like, so if I decided, oh, I'm going to choreograph a tango this week, I would flirt with it enough to, I, I would never say, oh, I'm a tango choreographer now or a tango dancer. <laughs> but I would know it well enough to understand a little bit about it. And so now, like, if I'm in tech, which happens all the time now, when I'm in tech and a moment's not working, and I was like, oh, you know, this waiter should feel like he's a tango dancer, then I can whip it out. Because I have a memory of like imitating that, yeah. not being that, but imitating it. And in that sense of being able to riff is very important now for me. Class really helped. And then on top of that, I met all the dancers who danced in my Broadway shows in class. You know what I mean? We, were yeah. all, we all came up together. Yeah. 
which is great. Makes sense. One of my favorite pieces of dance that I've ever seen on Broadway was your duet with Marianne Lamb and Fosse. And what is it, like 60 seconds? It's like 55 seconds, yeah. It was brilliant. You were such an amazing performer, and you started doing principal roles in Saturday Night Fever. What, when did this transition start? Because I could watch that 55 yeah. seconds well, over I was, and over. I mean, that 55 <laughs> seconds is epic. Because, yeah. you know, that was the, also the 55 seconds that put Bob Fosse on the map. Mm. Because he had choreographed a few things in the movie musicals. He had already won Tony Awards. He had always gone back and forth between performing, choreographing, directing, going back to Hollywood. And they said to him, you know, this feels like you. You just choreograph yourself. Chore for choreograph it for yourself. Maybe it was Hermes Pan was choreographing it. And so Bob Fosse choreographed it, and it gave him an instant identity. It instantly catapulted him into being a, a choreographer with a vision, with a, with a style, with, a, with an energy. And in many ways, dancing that duet in Fosse, for people who are listening who don't know, Bob Fosse danced it and he choreographed it in the film Kiss Me Kate. For me, in Fosse, it did the exact same thing. Mm. Like it gave me instantly an identity. So I started choreographing immediately after that show because people remembered me, like they knew who I was. Doing it with Marianne Lamb was unbelievable. Like we were never touching the floor. Like it was, it was an amazing uh, 55 seconds. And, yeah. and, and many times in my life, I felt like I, I feel like I stopped dancing too early, but literally that solo, that duet is the moment I look back to, to feel like I took full advantage of it. Like that I know I danced as good as I could ever dance. And it was in that, that duet. And, and so it gave me a real sense of being good at what I was doing, but also like being superhuman. We need those big high mile markers to float us through something that's coming next. Yeah. And it's interesting because a lot of my choreography to follow was an imitation of that. There's sections of bandstand that are like right out of that duet. Not the same choreography, but the same feeling. Yeah. In fact, I choreographed a solo in bandstand to open the second act. I choreographed the entre act and it was completely my imitation of that <laughs> duet. And then I ended up never setting it on the cast because it was like one of the best things I have ever choreographed. It was like a minute and a half long, all with cigarettes, four men with cigarettes. It was totally amazing. And I ran out of time in rehearsal and you inherently skip things you know are unnecessary when, mm. you're, when, you're, when you're working fast. You're like, I'll get back to that, I'll get back to that. If you're saying I'm gonna get back to it, it's because it's not vital to tell the story. So I finished the show and still in tech, I was gonna set the dance. I got to the end of the first act and I was like, I'm not gonna set the dance. So I never set the dance because it, it, wasn't, it wasn't vital for the story. It was just been, it would have been a colorful, amazing moment, but not vital for the emotion. And so I skipped it. But you know, so all these years later, 20 years later, you know, I'm still imitating that, that duet. Right. I literally, whenever I do anything that's not hip hop, hip hop, I have a cigarette in my mouth and a hat on, and I don't smoke, I've never smoked, but like I channel Bob Fosse in that era in order to jump start my creativity. Like I, I can choreograph hip hop, but I'll start choreographing 1950s, and then I'll turn it into hip hop steps. But like that's, a, that's the place I like to jump off of. I love it, Cause, and you started choreographing on Broadway with Apple Tree, and then yeah. that led to... Well, I, I actually got, I mean, the, to, I got the offer the to do In the Heights first. Oh, you did? Well, what happened was I choreographed Apple Tree at City Center on course, and it was a one-off. It was like not going to happen yeah. again. And then I got In the Heights and started choreographing it off-Broadway, and then, then Apple Tree, uh, the Studio 54 opened up, and they're like, can we open Apple Tree in three months? And so then they called me to do Apple Tree, and so I actually did double duty. So oh, wow. I did Apple Tree, and then when Apple Tree was in previews, I started rehearsals for In the Heights, 
which was epically big. I mean, yeah. Land of the Heights was so big. So big. And we set so many things that we cut. So I was choreographing so much. And so In the Heights opened off-Broadway like a month and a half after Apple Tree. And within the Heights, I think, is when your vocabulary or your stamp started to be really shown and uh, yeah. shown and recognized. Yeah. And it was amazing. I think the thing I love, you have transitions. You show your stories never stop. And how was developing this new style that was going to become Andy Blankenbuehler within the Heights? You know, the, the, the idea of transitions never stopping wasn't so intentional as saying, you know, it's going to be my stop, my, 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 my stamp on it to have narrative transitions all the time. Basically what happens is Lynn's music and with Tommy and Alex, it's not like production numbers. It's not like the song starts and it is a big production number and then it's over and then a scene starts. Mm -hmm. It's much more fluid than that. Like in a lot of it's because Lynn raps. And so like a song like 96,000 is like this slow burn. And so the number is stylized because there's a beat and he's speaking to rhythm and the lyric is colorful. And so because of that, you could just completely be pedestrian, but why? You're right. So I'd rather have the bodega like stop and start and click to accent his words. So because of that, what in a normal musical would be a scene, the scene is already stylized because the beat's already there, even though voices haven't grown yet. And so the early parts of these musical numbers were not pedestrian. So because that was the inherent Thing that I thought best suited Lynn's music, that sort of stoppy and starty, that sense of whatever our style is, our stylization is, that wanted to keep going. So that when we would finish a number, and the transitional music would play, I wouldn't want to just do like an in-one transition and go to the next scene. Yeah. I'd want to bridge one style to the next style. And so that's how I started just staging the transitions at In the Heights. And then what ended up happening was you get to a work through or you get to doing something in tech and you're like, how do I get from point A to point C? Like, we didn't think this thoroughly enough. We, we knew we had to connect it, but now we actually have to connect it. And, and that's where I remember really specifically on stage at 37 Arts, one of the really, the, one of my favorite moments in the show and became a trademark was what we called the breakup transition in the middle of the second act. And one couple is about to end up together and one couple is about to split up. And so there's this transition where four couples walk across the space and then one of each couple, one person goes into slow motion and it forces the other person to walk away from them. And so now it's eight single people and now all eight of them walk away as single people. And, and so it melded the, song, the scene before and the scene after in the same style that had been happening all night with the slow mm. motion. And, and it was in that moment that I realized, like, be aggressive in transition to not let the energy out of the audience. Like, Hal Prince tells, you know, analyzes scene shifts, saying that the, the audience has an emotional bank. And, and as soon as you spend the emotional bank, they stop believing in you. Like, they can no longer suspend their disbelief. So, like, if a scene, if a blackout happens and you wait 10 seconds, and then a curtain goes back up, and you have to start all over again. Yeah. Like I've just taken 20% of my bank. But if you never stop in the show, the audience never stops leaning forward. So they're totally with you. And, and that, so that sense of choreographing and stylizing transition was also a manipulative device to force the audience to keep thinking different things. And as I'm writing now, that's actually what I'm writing. So I'm not writing like traditional scene song dance number or whatever it is, I'm writing the transitions. Mm. Just like I'm going to stage them in tech, yeah. I'd just rather write them in advance if I can. To, and, and in those transitions, 
you can do storytelling that's so from the side that tells you a different angle of the character subconsciously that it inf- it informs their next song or their eleven o'clock song. I mean, bandstand is filled with it. Yeah, bandstand is filled with transitional moments, forcing the audience to figure out what they mean. Oh, oh, and maybe sometimes not even putting it together, but now understanding that oh, that person is afraid of this, or that person wants that, or you know, the environment is causing that person to react such and such a way. And so I think that that sense of transition did become a style for me. Um, It hasn't always worked well. Sometimes I force things stylistically onto a moment that never deserve it. That's sort of an immaturity that I think I'm getting better at. But, Mm. you know, I I, I over-choreographed a lot. And and also, some characters just should not dance. And some (laughs) some emotional ideas should not dance. I mean, I got a Tony nomination for 9 to 5, but I'm sure that's show danced twice as much as it should have. Right. Because it, it grew the environment in a way, it exaggerated the environment in a way that probably wasn't healthy for the three women's storylines. So, you know, it's, it's tough. It's a big learning process. <laughs> yeah. Well, in all your shows, what I love and appreciate is that the ensemble is not background. They yeah, yeah. are storytelling. Yeah. So is that something that you've always wanted to do that they... Well, that's why this- I stopped dancing. Mm. I stopped dancing because I wanted to be storytelling all the yeah. time. And, and I don't want to come on and do cartwheels. You know what I mean? I want to come on and know that I'm affecting something. And I know I'm not the lead. I, I don't need to be the lead. I never needed to be the lead. I just needed to do, I needed to speak with strong words. And, and so my job as a choreographer and as a director is how can my movement for the dancers, for the ensemble, for the cast, be really strong pieces of vocabulary? And that doesn't mean high kicks. I hardly ever do anything with extension. I hardly ever choreograph turns. But like, what? How can it mean? How can it mean something? Like, uh, you've seen bands, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like when the men push on the piano. Mm. Like I knew what that was going to be. Like I saw it long before I taught anybody the moment, and I taught it to them. And I was just concerned: is this too hard? Like they're all all the way horizontal. They're pushing a piano <laughs> so slowly, and. They were like nearly in tears from how moved they were to do it. Like, wow. so I taught it in like 10 minutes, the whole thing with the running and everything. And I was like, is that okay? Like, I was apologizing for it. Like, and even though I knew it was beautiful and emotional, and they were like so transported by it. Like, that's how I wanted to feel as a dancer. Like, it doesn't matter if my quads are burning or if it's simplistic. If I know that it's affecting something emotionally, like, I, that's what I wanted to do. And so when I'm working now, I see those images and sort of push the writing to accommodate it. You know what I mean? Yes. Like that moment wasn't in the script. Right. Like the, his piano playing wasn't in the script. Oh, He really? never wrote that song. Like what it was originally was he went away, he came back the next day and said to her, listen to the song I made. And we call that the Beautiful Mind transition because I love the soundtrack to Beautiful Mind. And he would sit in that room and plaster the newspaper articles all around him and you could see words spinning in his head. You could see the layers of his brain that would not stop working. And so I said, we w- I want to see him write the song. And so I said to, to Greg and the composers, Greg is the dance arranger, like deconstruct the song, tell me what it would sound like if you were writing it. And so he struggles to find the one note, the one note, the one note, and then right at the end of it, the note resolves into the correct place, and now he knows what the song is supposed to be. And he he takes his hand off the keyboard, and it goes into the orchestra, and he hears it. That whole thing, and at Paper Mill, the piano was automated. Oh. And so the, the song idea worked, 
but it had no gravity. And so then when we cut the automation intentionally on Broadway, I was like, oh, how am I going to get the piano on the center stage? And that, that was the perfect answer. Yeah. So I didn't make the moment for the men. I made the moment for the piano. And then, like, by problem solving, sometimes th the problems give us the best ideas because they're forcing you into parameters that exist and you cannot ignore. Like, you know, when I started working on Heights, the set was pretty much already designed when I came on. And I was like, there's no room. There's no room to dance. Like, there's a staircase there. There's a pole there. There's a wall there. But those parameters made my choreography so specific. I had to turn a certain way to hit a certain angle to push off the step to exit. And all of a sudden, the choreography was like so cool. Yeah. Where if it was an open space, and that, that's what I say. As soon as I start a show with a new designer, I was like, put shit in the way. <laughs> like, like, put stuff in the way to make me make choices. And then what we'll find sometimes is, okay, let's move that over there. It doesn't yeah. really need to be there, but we have to understand what the parameters are in a piece. And for Donnie, his parameters are he can't let go of the things that are in the back of his head. Yeah. And the things that are in the back of his head are his fallen friends. Yeah. So how Demons. perfect that yeah. he's trying to accomplish things musically to heal his soul. So for him to find the best piece of music he's ever written and to be pushed on by his fallen friends, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. I love that you make male dancers appear so masculine and graceful at the same time. And that's something that I love as an audience member, but also as a, as a performer. How are you able to be masculine and graceful at the same time? That's... You know, I'm not the world's greatest technician, and I never, and I never was, but I was pretty good at like fluidity. Like I was pretty good at sort of Fosse-esque beauty with line and stuff. And so that's how I dance. And you know, I love West Side Story and Gene Kelly and Justin Timberlake and all these heavy male presents. And so I just throw, I smash both together. And so me as a dancer, like that's how I dance. I dance in a way that has a lot of levity to it. Mm. I mean, part of what you're sensing is literally like a masculine energy, but it's fluid. But it's something that's, it's, a, it's further than that. It's that for good resolution, you need believable tension. Mm. And so within any arc, the arc of the whole show, you need tension that makes resolution seem impossible. And so when resolution happens, it's moving. Then there are mini arcs all through the show. There's mini arcs in each song. If there's no tension, where's the number going to go? I mean, that's why the verse structure resolving into the chorus structure is so vital. When you hear a song and you can't hear the difference between the two, there's going to be a problem because the tension doesn't explode into the resolution of the chorus. And so, in the, especially more for me, more male dancers than women, because I choreograph for men better, I think, that everything has tension about it. So that masculine energy is really just me creating what is tension. Mm. And then the levity is the answer. And so the character has many arc where the song has a bigger arc and the show has the biggest arc. Yeah. Like, like there's a step at the end that I had to fix last week at Hamilton. At the end of the finale, she says... You're still uh, fixing stuff at Hamilton? No, I mean, I, I went to clean the company. That's amazing. And the, and the yeah. show had yeah. evolved. The, no, the, the, right, the right. step had evolved. And it's this writing step... She says, I go through all of your papers. Like, how did you write so much? And so the men behind her grab this quill and do this step where the hand goes to the paper. And there's this little turn of the chin. And the moment was to be 
to say that, yes, he write, wrote all these amazing things, but it was never easy. It was like carving it out of stone. Mm. That every day that he was forced to write something, it was like he had to turn the world upside down to figure it out. Like, as a creative artist, it's not easy. And so the men weren't pliéing, and the, uh, they were rolling their arms, like making the dough, as opposed to like trying to push a locomotive, like a steam engine. And so by putting that tension back in there, they're like, oh, now I understand what the step is in a different way. And that's only an eight-count step. Yeah. But it's an eight-count step that provides the tension for Eliza's resolution that's about to happen in a minute. Like, you have to keep building the tension for her benefit. And that's what I mean about, like, letting go of the intellect. Of the, you have to be selfless. You have, yeah. to, you have to use your intellect to understand, or I just laid four bricks so she could stand on them later. So if she stands flat on the floor, it's never gonna be as good yeah. than if she's elevated. Yeah, you said you choreographed better for men, but I watched you said a piece on Shannon Lewis. You laughed at me and you're like, oh, I can outgirl anyone, Brad. <laughs> Do you become the character? Do you become, when you're choreographing, you as a, uh, as a yeah. dancer? Yeah, I'm very uh, method that way. I, you know, I don't know if you know, but I've never taken an acting class. And so like, I, I talk about things like method acting, I don't really know what that means. But like I think, I have to inhabit the character. Yeah. And that doesn't mean I walk around and drag, but like I feel like I, I have to be able to, I'll never be as good as the dancers on stage, but I have to do it enough to be in the trenches with them to see what it really feels like. But like I'd spent enough time in Fosse school to understand how a hip roll works in a way that it, a lot of these women don't. Right. Because I've seen, you know, Dana Moore and all these, Stan Lewis, all these amazing people dance with ways that their bodies are unbelievable. They're moving through space in an unbelievable way. So half of what I'm doing as a choreographer is imitating the way I've seen people move. Like I know what Sid Charisse moves like in the movie. Yeah. So I can move like Sid Charisse. I, I said a, a women's transition in bandstand. It was the same thing, all the women were like, I just want to do it like you, but I'm just doing it like somebody else. <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah. what I think is important is to never let go. Like I can't be a chair choreographer. Mm. Like there's a lot of things that I, I, I do let other people take the lead on. I have to get in shape to a certain extent for each show, like this new Parisian show that I'm working on, like it's gonna be really sexy. And it's gonna be the longest show I've ever done in terms of line, I mean, not length. Like it's gonna be extension, it's gonna be like lifts. Mm. It's gonna be balletic in a way that I haven't done before. And so I will have to concentrate for like six months in advance of starting that to get my body to move that way. In the same way I did the opposite thing for like In the Heights and Hamilton, and because I didn't really know how to choreograph hip hop. And so for months and months, all I did was wear those clothes. I never lengthened my body. I, I took hip hop class. I took like, I, I did things at the gym that were like crunching, that were small. And so I became that mover. And, and then it actually was hard to break out of that after dancing like that for a couple years. But I, I do think it's important to sort of to live that. And I'm pretty extreme about it. Like, yeah. like I'll, I dress a, a completely different way. Like you're seeing me in black tight pants today and a black t-shirt. Like I never wore this for the entirety of making bandstand. Really? Every single day I wore a collared shirt, like a button down shirt like somebody would wear in the 40s. I wore blue and gray the entire time in black pants and, and a character shoe. And so like I wear the same thing every day. I wore a hat every day. And so now I'm getting in, like, I feel like Gene Kelly in American Paris wearing yeah. this, because that's where I'm going next in, that, in, to, in the new show. So I'll start to like inhabit the character in those different ways. And I think it's fun, actually. Yeah. You know, I haven't lost that part of my performerness. I love that. Yeah. So after In the Heights and you won a Tony and it was an amazing experience, you had a career disappointment in nine to five, but then with, we were nominated, but then with Annie, you're dealing every day with a child and a show about children. 
but in your personal life is when you were yeah. dealing with your daughter and going to chemo. How, how do you balance yeah. any of that emotionally? You know, it was a, that entire time was a hard time. I mean, the thing about 9 to 5, 9 to 5 was a disappointment because I was living check to check all the time. And, and I was, you know, I've always made good money working as a Broadway performer or choreographing Broadway shows, but I, a couple things, I always wanted to live in a nice place, like, so I, I didn't have a roommate. Mm. And so I was always willing to teach during the day to pay for that extra money to have the apartment that I wanted. Likewise, when I started choreographing, I was like, you know what? I need my dance studio. No one had their own dance studio. So I rented a dance studio for 12 years because I knew I needed to take 10 hours to choreograph an eight count phrase. And so I started to learn those things about myself. And so because of that, I was leveraging my bank account. Mm. And, and it was just fine. Because I was like, in, like, Joe Mantella said to me once, invest in yourself. And that's what I was doing. I was like, I'm going to work this way because I believe it's going to pan out. Um, but that rent check was killing me. <laughs> and, you know, and then we had kids. And, and, and so, you know, the 9 to 5 was upsetting because I wanted the show to run. And I put a lot of work into it. We all did. But I was also like, when is life going to get a little easier? Yeah. You know? It, the other thing, I mean, 9 to 5 was a huge learning experience for me. Because I learned, you know, it was hard to, for me to make Dolly's music dance. It was also a lesson. It shouldn't have danced as much as it did. Mm. So I forced a lot of things on it. Also, office workers, do office workers dance? It's like, <laughs> I, and ultimately I was proud of the way they move. Yeah. But also it taught me a lot about saying, don't force actions onto people when it's not an inherent emotional action for them. And, you know, people love that show though. The I audience loved it. loved it. I did. So I was really proud of it. And so it was upsetting when it went, it went away quickly. Bring It On was in the middle of Annie. And so all of that, there was a lot of confusion in those years because I had never directed anything. And all of a sudden I'm putting myself on the line with Bring It On, working so hard. And that was a show where we wrote stuff, threw it away, choreographed stuff, threw it away, directed stuff, threw it away. And, and maybe that was the, the lack of maturity in me as a guiding director to say, you know what, this emotional moment's not honest enough, so let's go a different direction. Instead, we wrote the song, orchestrated the song, I staged the song to find out that it wasn't the right song. Ugh. And so there was a lot of legwork. I was doing a lot. And then at Annie, it was interesting because then I, I wasn't directing. And so, and Annie is a classic piece of theater with a lot of expectations. And it's a different job assignment completely. And I wanted that job assignment. I wanted a period piece. I wanted a piece with generosity and heart in it. But in where I was in my learning curve, I needed to stay in school. I needed to stay in the college of hard knocks. Not no joke intended with Annie. <laughs> but, but like, I, I, in a way, that was the wrong job assignment for me. Mm. And that was, again, me being an insecure choreographer to say, I, I need the next big show. I need... And so that, that was at times a hard thing for me. And it also taught me, like, I don't know how anxious I am to keep doing revivals because I, I'm an experimental person in terms of, I, I want to be with a team where we're saying, oh, you know what, let's not do this in this. Let's not set the scene. Let's set it in a cafe instead. Like, like changing things up. And revivals don't let you do yeah. things up like that. And then things really get rocky because Sophia was diagnosed the week Annie opened. And so at a time where creatively, I felt a little bit like I hadn't done my best work. She was, I, I brought her to opening night and, and both my wife and I knew she was sick. Like we, we didn't have the diagnosis yet, but mm. like we knew in our hearts that she was sick. And, and so everything coded about it was heavy. And I couldn't go back to Annie for like six months because it was wrapped up in the idea that for the last six months of her 
healthy life. I was at rehearsals for Annie. I wasn't okay with that. The next months were interesting. I mean, it was brutal what we went through with Sophia and what Ellie and my son Luca went through. And thank God for Hamilton. Mm. You know, in, in between, I directed a tour of Joseph, but and Joseph was really good for me because it felt like it put me back on my feet. Yeah. But Hamilton cured things in many ways. And your daughter's my all daughter's cured two now. years. Yeah, she's two years out of treatment. She's great. That's amazing. And yeah. with Hamilton, when you started that, did you know right away that this is something special or? Oh, it was, a, it was unbelievable. He played the first song for me when he played it for everybody else and he went to the White House. And then I, they did a song cycle at Lincoln Center, a jazz at Lincoln Center, played like nine songs. And I was like, this is crazy. Like, this is crazy. And, and at that time I was like, I don't know if it's a show. Like, it's so good, isn't it? Mm. Because he wrote an album. He wanted it to be an album. And so I was like, I don't know, maybe this should just be an album. Maybe this is a film. I don't know what it is. And luckily, Jeffrey Seller, I guess, convinced he and Tommy to to make it a musical. So they kept writing. They didn't offer me the job. I mean, I think maybe (laughs) they assumed they were going to offer it. Maybe I assumed they were going to offer it. But nobody offered it. And then they finished it. They finished, like, the first act. And they invited, then they finally said, I want you to choreograph it. <laughs> and then I attended some readings and a reading of the half the second act, all the second act. And I knew it was an unbelievable thing, but not like it is now. Right. Like it, we didn't know it was going to turn into this. Yeah. And then we set, we had five weeks to do a workshop. We had movable platforms, basically the same arena kind of shape, no turntable. Like we weren't going to use a turntable yet. We were finding all the rules. Uh, we had five weeks to set the show. In five weeks, I hadn't even finished the first act. Like, I hadn't finished the first act. Wow. I was two numbers short in the first act. And then they read the second act at Music Stands, and people went crazy. Like, crazy. When everybody, like, people who were in that workshop audience said, this is the best piece of entertainment of any media we've ever seen. That kind of scared me. Because, first of all, I was scared on two, two fronts. One, the second act they just read at Music Stands, and it was so good, I was afraid they were going to remove me. <laughs> and, and do it as a concert. Do it as, like, no choreography. Because yeah. the words were so complicated, I was afraid that they were going to think I was going to get in the way. And, but then the other thing that scared me, I like, went to my wife, I'll never forget, at the end of the first performance she saw, and I said, I have to clear my schedule. Like, like for the next year, because if I'm going to actually choreograph this show for real, like, it's going to take so much time and so much concentration because it's that important. Like yeah. I knew it was gonna be that important. Ultimately, I didn't clear my schedule. Like I, I kept busy and Sophia's treatment kept us busy and we moved out of our house and moved in with my mother-in-law, which kept me busy. <laughs> and I, I moved out of my office for the first time in 12 years. And so there I was in the middle of choreographing the pinnacle of my entire career and I didn't have my own space. And so that was really hard. I'm not good at choreographing in rentals, like I can't do it, I have a mental block. Yeah. Like I can't choreograph one thing at Pearl Studios or, or Ripple Gear. Oh like, really? It, it doesn't happen. And so I started freaking out a little bit about that, a lot of it about that. I, maybe part of the blessing was that, that Lynn and Tommy and Alex's work was so good that we weren't fixing anything. Like it wasn't like, does this number work? Like a lot of times you write two things and you combine them to become one thing. Like everything they wrote ended up in the show. And, and things changed, of course, yeah. but, but the instincts were so visceral and, and colorful that when I would listen to a song like Yorktown or whatever, I had, had 10 good ideas. And I was like, I'd pick one. Yeah. And I'd choreograph half of it and just move on 
because I was like, well, we're going to start with this half. Let me move on. Because there was just so much material. And I have hours and hours and hours of videos where I'm just introducing ideas, like syncopations. Like, it's not the real step that you see anymore on stage, but it's the exact same rhythm. Or it's the exact same shape, but the totally different rhythms. Or, so I would just like find my footwork, find the ground where I was at, video it, move on. Because there was just so much material. Wow. Yeah, like I'd do like 10 partnering variations of one step. And then we'd combine all 10 to be one step. And it was crazy. It was a crazy time. I choreographed half the show at a tiny little dance studio on Lenox Avenue <laughs> called Black River Black, Black River Dance. And the girl gave me an amazing rate. And people came and went through my dance studio all day long. But for some reason, I was able to concentrate. Yeah. I choreographed part of it at NDI in the basement. And then I choreographed the rest of the show in my mother-in-law's basement on cement. I wow. touched the ceiling. And, some, and it was just miraculous that it all happened. Yeah. But. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm fortunate if I got to see the show twice. I was enthralled by not only the show, but mostly the ensemble, because they are storytelling, and yeah. they are part yeah. of it. They are a heartbeat of the show. Mm -hmm. Even the second time I saw it, I was like enthralled with your dancers. So from the beginning of creating it, having a completely blank canvas, how did you decide this is what... It's, I need. You know, it's interesting. I, I was out on, I was in uh, maybe uh, New Haven or someplace. I was teching the tour of Bring It On. And I was starting to really work on, on Hamilton then. And every morning in my hotel room, I'd push play. I'd listen to the entire score. Because there were so many good moments, I had to start to define what I was going to try to accomplish mm. so that I didn't repeat myself and so that the show didn't become uh, like a hip-hop blend of craziness. And so one idea at a time would come to me. Oh, I just see red coats pacing. Oh, I, 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 blue coats that are all torn up. This is where they touch their guns for the first time. Like it took me a long time to figure out when to use guns and how to use guns. Mm. I, I, I didn't ever want the blue coats and the red coats to be on stage together because I didn't think it would ever be believable. Yeah. Like, like hundreds of thousands of people died. How can I show that with 12 dancers? Yeah. And so like, I, then I realized like right hand man, I should never see a red coat. Stay alive. I should never see interaction. Battle of Yorktown. Ne in Battle of Yorktown, you never see a red coat until the guy surrenders. Yeah. You know, there's never a moment. Oh, that's a lie. In the middle of Yorktown, they wrestle one red coat to the floor. But and so I started to see those ideas, and I write them in outline form in Word documents. And like I'll 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 write things like, oh, make this section like heavy, crumpy, on, like on the backbeat, like, and I'll understand that like, that's the one thing where I'm gonna have a march for like a minute straight. I'll write it, and I'll know like. I notch off like March check and so one thing at a time I would have ideas for but like the slow motion bullet oh, that's, like it's epic and, and, it, that. and that was uh, that again happened because I had the idea in my head I never staged it and it was time to attach scene A to scene C and I was like I got this and there was this oil painting that I loved with this red coat and he had such intensity like he was like a killing machine. And that's, what's, that's why I had Seth do that. Because like, Seth is intense. And, and all of a sudden there's this dynamic red coat for the first time pointing a gun. Like that's frightening. Yeah. And so it just was a natural idea to me that, that let's stop the bullet in slow motion. I don't know. It just was natural. And, but it was, it's such amazing storytelling for many reasons. Yeah. Like the control, the, tens the tension. But that it goes over Hamilton's head because Hamilton is bent over to write. Like the writing saved his mm -hmm. life. And you get that instantly in the transition. And, and so 
things like that would just come to me. The, the other thing that's amazing about Hamilton is there's humongous anthems in the show. Like, just like my country, like, I am not throwing away my... Yeah. There's these, these musical and lyrical anthems that come back. That gives me as a choreographer the, the ability to create anthems that come back. And so I'll do things in a show and I'll, I feel like it's my in. Like, like, I got it, I understand what this is. And then as soon as, if I know it's strong enough, I can repeat myself. And so I know that can become an anthem that I can use like three or four different times in the show, but change it up. Yeah. And there's a lot of mileage from that. And, and Hamilton was rare for that. I kept finding things that made sense to me emotionally. And then I found ways to retrofit them. So like I've, I would do a whole pass of the show and realize right towards the end of the second act, I could do this. So now let me go back to where it was before and, and really make it an anchor over there. So it was like a build, it was a huge building process, but it was really exciting. And how did you decide that these are the type of dancers I need? Because the qualifications of having extreme technique oh, and having hip hop, I can't. <laughs> well, I force, as Alex will always tell anybody, dance onto moments that people didn't intend to dance. Mm. And so it drives them crazy because people can't sing then when they're supposed to be singing. Mm. Um, but the, uh, I, I, in one respect, I knew that the hip hoppiness would get old because mm. there's so much hip hop beat in the show if you didn't have other colors. And so somebody like Thane is great because Thane does everything, yeah. hip hop and everything. But he has such great color and eccentricity in his movement and his legato phrasing that I need him and he swings downstage in times to clean the palette mm. from other things. Yeah. And so that happens all night long. Like, like Carly had this amazing aloof energy, this smoldering energy. So I swing her into the audience's focus and all of a sudden when you're looking at her, you're noticing her ball gown and you're noticing her feet you're noticing the elegance of her arms. And again, that's the palate cleaner. Yeah. And then that moment's gone and she be has become architecture. I don't need to like have a set of a ballroom anymore because she has become the ballroom. And so those physical elements become costume design, they become scenic design, but they also become the very important palate cleaner for the other things. Oh, I love it, it's fantastic. There was a moment I remember when we worked on People in the Picture that you had ideas of like, oh, we, I could fix this, I could fix this. But at being solely the choreographer, you couldn't fix yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Is moments like that decided, and you did bring it on, where now you're like, even though Hamilton was such a success, do you see yourself being more of a director choreographer now? Yeah, I do think I'm gonna be more of a director choreographer. I mean, part of it is selfish in that I don't have forever to choreograph. Like I'm 47 and, and it's getting harder every time. And, and I, my ideas and my tastes aren't getting easier, they're getting more complicated. So I, I want to accomplish certain things in the next however many years. And so to do that, I, I'm more selective with creating and being part of projects that I know are gonna let me go down those avenues. Mm. So, so that often means that I have to, not just in charge, but negotiate the story the way I want it to go. Just this past week, I had to make a major decision in my career because I was offered the, one of the shows that I've always wanted to do in my entire life with a director who I love and really admire. Mm. And I had to say no because I have to stick to my guns to say there's not enough time to do all those things. Like, if it's gonna take me all this time to choreograph this one stylized idea, like yeah. I have to commit to that. And, but I also enjoy it. I, I, like, I like being one-on-one -on -one with the set designer and one-on-one -on -one with the lighting designer. And, and, and like, I have a great relationship with Tommy Kale, and we, we do a lot of things together, and he's an amazing organizer of everyone's best work. But I like playing that role too. It's tough. You know, you mentioned people in the picture. 
that part of what was special about Hamilton is Hamilton gave me the opportunity to finalize things that I had tried before that were unsuccessful. Mm. Like you remember in people in the picture, there was that scene in the, where everything suspended when the two people gave each other bad news. Yes. That's Hurricane in Hamilton. Oh, it's you're the right. same. Yeah. It's the same idea. Yes. It rotates the same way. The furniture moves the same way. Yes. Everything splats against the wall. But that scene and people in the picture didn't allow that to come to fruition for many reasons. Like, first of all, Hurricane's called Hurricane. <laughs> I, have a, I have a subconscious affiliation with the image and the word. And so I, I use the same scenic device, the same movement device, literally the same. But what is also different in Hurricane is that each thing that suspends around the outside were iconic moments in his life. Where in people in the picture, the things that suspended around were just the furniture. Yeah. They were just nameless yeah. people. In, they weren't inherently important in their life. So in Hamilton, it's like Burr, it's Seabury, it's a dead red soldier, yeah. it's a dead blue soldier. It's his quill, it's his table, it's everything that was his life has been thrown against the walls. But that moment, and that number was on the verge of getting cut in the show. Hurricane was? Hurricane was. Wow. And, 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 and we were having notes down to the public, is this song really necessary? Should we move it someplace else? And I staged it, and then it never came up again. Because it's, all yeah. of a sudden, all cylinders were burning for yeah. everybody on the team. Yeah, it makes sense. With now being a direct choreographer like Michael Bennett and Bob Fosse, you have bandstand running right now. That, I love bandstand. It made me want to like dance in the aisles. How did that come into your, to your life? And you added another element of going back to what you talked about earlier, the orchestra mentality. Now you have that performers who are actually yeah. instruments. The, the way it happened was um, I was in Dallas working on a new musical called Fly with Jeffrey Seller, a lot of the In the Heights team, but it's a Peter Pan adaptation. And I was really down. And Sophia was in the middle of treatment and I wasn't able to be at home, which was heartbreaking. And my friend, David Kreppel, who I grew up with, and Richard Oberacker, who I knew from Cincinnati, called me and said, I took the call on a 10 minute break. I left tech, I went out into the sunshine in Dallas. And I remember so well what the grass felt like. I took that, every, every time I got like a job that I knew was gonna affect me in a deep way, I can remember everything about the phone call. And they said, you know, we, I, we think this is gonna have a director choreographer vision, sat in the 40s, like I love World War II, I love the 40s, I love everything about that era. And so I was interested, and so I had, I had thoughts about the piece. I didn't think the piece was done. They were very open to my thoughts. And so I just dove in with both feet. And the piece then was not the piece that it is now. I mean, mm. I've never seen a piece of theater go through such an evolution as this piece did. It became a different show. And the bones were always there. The story was always there. It's the exact same story. But how it comes around is different. It's much more contemporary now. It's much more fluid. It's much more gutsy and emotional. I started working on those readings. And, and I was to this place in my life where I was like, you know what? This is going to be a team, but it feels like I'm not that I'm in charge, but it feels like, you know what, I'm gonna earn this. Yeah. Like I'm gonna work hard. And I wanted that in my life. And part of that was I wanted to feel useful during Sophia's chemotherapy. Like there was nothing I could do for her. Yeah. And so I felt like I wanna work my absolute hardest so that I can, and I hadn't started Hamilton yet. I started Van Sand before Hamilton. Really? Oh, I wow. knew I was gonna do Hamilton, but yeah. I hadn't finished writing it yet. So I, I said, you know what, I need to sweat. You know what it feels like to yeah. work out. Like oh, I need to yes. work out hard. So I thought that with the whole show, I said, I'm gonna kill myself to make the show good. So we did readings, we did a workshop at Lincoln Center. We were lucky enough to get an invite to do a show at Paper Mill. Really great people came in and out of, you know, 
they were available for six months, so they did a workshop. They became unavailable. Jeremy Davis, some of my favorite people did the show. We did the show at Paper Mill, learned a lot about it. It was a totally different show. It felt like a 1950s traditional piece of theater at Paper Mill. I, I decided, you know, David Corns and I we were going to redesign the set. I was going to re-choreograph the show. I was going to move it differently. So we made humongous changes between Paper Mill and then waiting for a Broadway theater. And in between all that, I, we did Hamilton. <laughs> and, and as a person like me, you, get, you feel like you're bipolar sometimes because you have to so commit. So like, for example, when I was doing Bandstand in the past six months, I didn't listen to anything but swing music at the gym, on the subway, all the time. It, I couldn't, if I had to attend a Hamilton thing, I would not let myself dance hip hop. I would dance like Rumor It Happens or something, right. but as soon as I would feel the beat differently, it would take me a day to recover. Like I couldn't, I would lose concentration. That's what happened. I opened, we opened Chicago, Hamilton in October, got the phone call the last week of October that we were going to get the Jacobs Theater. Oh, and great. then we just dove in. We yeah. started designing. I started redoing the music with uh, Greg, new dance arrangements and stuff. And we just jumped in. You know, I love, I, I love the period, and I, I don't know, there's something about the hardships of war that mean a lot to me, that people made sacrifices. And it's, I didn't go into this because I wanted to tell a story about vets and how much we owe, ourselves, uh, owe to the vets. That wasn't the story I wanted to tell. That's what the story's about. Right. But what was epically important to me is sacrifices have been made. Parents make them, teachers make them, and, and there's not... Sometimes they go unrecognized. But the, the other thing, the, the real important story that moves me is that art heals the soul. Like I said to the Arthos, like this is a core sign. Mm -hmm. Like th these people must, they, they must do this. They must do this to pay their rent and they must do this because their life will never reach a, a level of contentment unless they're able to put into their work what they believe can exist in their life. And, and so the, the show became more and more about that. Yeah. And this is such an exciting season. I've seen so many things, oh, but it's crazy good. It's crazy good. But I, I love Bandstand. I think I saw it like two days before it opened, mm -hmm. and I, I wanted to just get up and dance and yeah. and go back to yeah. class because there's something. I think it is the period, and I could do it like Hamilton. Yeah. I was like, there's no way yeah, I can yeah, do yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you recognize it. Yeah, I'll never forget. I saw the American Masters. I think that's what it's called. Special on Jerome Robbins, who always, obviously is my idol, and I watched the show. In so such awe of it, but not in a cocky way. I said, "Oh, I understand that." Like I could, like you with yeah. Bandsam, I could understand what he was doing. Yeah, and I'm not saying I could do it, but it was a language I could speak. And like West Side on the town, like I was, I, I was able to understand what he was shooting for. Two days later, I went to see Fela uh, on Broadway. Yes. And and I was, I love the show, and it's about as abstract as I go. Oh. Like, I can't go more abstract than that, yeah. because then I get confused. But I loved the show, I was really moved by the show, and I was dazzled by the movement, and I was totally depressed. Because I looked at that and I said, I don't understand any of it. Right, yeah. Like, I don't understand the thousands of years of life and history that went into the making of how those bodies are moving. Like, it's not in me. I can't understand that. It's mm -hmm. not who I am. Yeah, very and, true. And yeah. so it's, it was such an interesting distinction to be moved by two genius creative artists, one of which I feel like speaks a language that I can speak and one that speaks a totally different language. Yeah. Well, speaking of combined language, with Cats, you kept some of the original and infused some of yourself. And was Jillian there? I mean, Jillian was never there. It was slightly awkward in the beginning because... You know, Jillian had a lot to do with the original production and that it's so choreographed. There's so much movement in that show. And I 
long story short, like I wouldn't choose to choreograph the way Jillian choreographs. She was from the ballet world. She mm -hmm. dances with long lines. I dance with fast, tight, small rhythms. Like, so we pick two different ways to interpret the exact same music. The show, Andrew, Trevor, the producers, didn't, there was never an, an interest to change the design. Like the design was gonna be the same. It was the cats that we know. And I also felt, working on Saturday Night Fever, 9 to 5, Dirty Dancing, that this is a ch show we should not change. Yeah. Like, give them the warm bath that they romantically remember when they saw the show 30 years ago. Oh. But then let's tweak it. Like, once they're in their seats, make them think, oh, I don't remember being this scared. I don't remember being mm. this happy. I don't remember being this moved. Like, make them think they understand it, but then show them something different as well. And so knowing that conceptually the show is going to feel like the same show, I knew that it was really important not to get away from Jillian's work because so much of her work in that show is unbelievable. Yeah. Like it's really amazingly choreographed. But the audience expectation has changed. Our ability to multitask, to see four things at the same time and translate. The younger audiences especially, they get bored fast. And so I asked hard questions of the whole team. What does this moment mean? Like, is this even necessary? Is this section necessary? The, and they would, oftentimes the answer would be like, we made that up because of such and such and such and such. And I would be like, so? How does that affect me now? Like, yeah. it doesn't. Like, I, that only confuses me because I wasn't in the room with you. And so like now we have also, we have Cirque du Soleil. We have all these other immersive pieces of theater yes. that really are transportive in a huge way. And so it was just a reminder to say, let's go back to your original impulse, cats, and make the characters more defined, make the focus a little bit more specific. And so the choreography changed a lot for those reasons. Like for example, even though it's, it should be void to me of time period, I wanted some of the cats to feel young, uh, more contemporary. Rumble Teaser, Mungo Jerry, Mistopheles, Carbuckety. Like I wanted them to feel like they could be on the streets of Harlem. And so they moved to different beats than they usually, uh, than they used to. Yeah. Because what was happening is Mungo Jerry and Carbuckety, they were dancing the same way that the veteran cat was dancing. And so, like a Hamilton or whatever, I want unison to feel unison, but let's hold off on unison longer and let's let, let them interpret slightly differently. So that's sort of how I jumped into it, but it was like a really difficult surgical process because I was doctoring in a way choices that I did not make. And so it, it was a difficult thing, but I have great admiration for the show and yeah. love, love for the show. Oh, so yeah. I wanted to do it justice. It's interesting because now, like that note up there behind that Tony is from Jillian. She sent it to me a couple uh, recently with the two little girls. Oh yeah. She and I have become friends. She's 91 years old. She's seen everything. She's done everything. Yeah. I had dinner with her in London a couple months ago. We sat in a cafe, 10 feet, it was like a Schubert Alley kind of cafe, 10 feet from where we were is the stage door for another theater. <laughs> and she said, during the war, bombs were falling down the street and I was performing in that theater in the ballet company. And I was like, you have seen it all. Like, and I'm sitting with you. Yeah. It was one of the most romantically beautiful evenings that I could not believe I was there. And she was telling me stories about being on set, filming movies, and how the director saw this, but she saw that, and she would steal the camera there. Like, it was an unbelievable conversation. And she had a driver there, and she's like, can I drive you back to your hotel? And I was like, uh, no, I need to walk. <laughs> and I walked home, and it was misty, and I was like, I cannot believe I just had dinner with Jillian Lynn, cut to 1987, when I warped my cassette tape of Cats, oh. playing it so many times in my VW Bug. Oh, yeah. It, I loved it. it was, I remember it. It was unbelievable. And so the whole process was really difficult 
because of the job assignment, but at the same time, really exciting. Yeah. And I was, and I, and I worked really closely with Natasha Katz, who lit it. Oh. So in that way, it felt like she and I were the only newbies. We did a lot together, so it felt like we had a good contribution there. So you're entering a whole new medium, choreographing Dirty Dancing, the movie. So what is the biggest difference between choreographing Broadway and? You know, I think um, I don't know if I can totally be objective about that yet just because I, I this was the very first thing I ever choreographed for film and and the big difference for Dirty Dancing was that the team was sort of pulled together in a different way than I'm used to like in a like with like with me and Tommy and Alex and Lynn like we finish each other's sentences mm. like we can have meals together we know where we all are we're shooting for the same thing the, with Dirty Dancing it was all new relationships and so it was Fast and Furious the director was from Australia like none of us spent a lot of face to face time mm. together but that was okay because we were working on a piece of theater a piece of uh, film theater that was so iconic yes. that we knew we didn't want to got it. Yes. Like we basically wanted to pay homage to something that has such love about it. Say it in our own way. In the same way cats. But was. not depart. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a very similar assignment. And and so it was interesting and I, I did learn a lot because so much prep is needed in the theater and not a lot of people do it. Like I'm willing to do the prep because I know it's the only way I can do my best work. And and I I learned quickly with Dirty Dancing what questions to ask in doing my prep because I didn't ask all the right questions. And so a lot of the things that I choreographed, the framing of the story, which I'm finally getting good at as a stage choreographer, it didn't get put in the can. Like the final film product, I hope people enjoy, it doesn't all look like I had intended it to look. And a lot of that is because you work at this fast and furious pace that you have to have everything articulated in a way that when that camera's focused on it, everyone knows what they're intending to capture. And one thing that I did learn that I'll bring with me as I move into the next project is that in the theater, like I shoot through people to focus on the focal point. Like there's a moment in Hamilton where Philip gets the guns from his father and he turns front and he says, my name is Philip, I'm a poet. Like I'm nervous, but I'm not gonna show it. And the person all the way downstage is this some, sort of the most impressive looking physical man in the ensemble. He's facing the other way and he's just doing a step with his shoulder, like inflating. And it's the audience looking past this anchor of a man to a boy who's afraid that is the contrast. And the lighting design helps you. You don't even notice you're looking at him. Yeah. But he's intentionally right in front of Philip. But you're looking at Philip. And in, the, in film, you have to do the same thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? You have to figure out how to situate the framing device. And the framing device might be blur. It might be that the, the surround is completely blurred, like an impressionistic painting and it's informing that. Or it could be like the 10 beautiful romantic dips as a man and a woman face each other, almost a kiss. Like the framing device colors everything. And, and I learned quickly about how to explain myself to get those things to still happen. Yeah. The other thing that was interesting about Dirty Dancing is it's not really, it's not a musical. Right. You know what I mean? The physicality is because we're in a dance world. He's a dance teacher. Yep. They're taking dance class. There's a band over there and we're jamming to the band. So when dance happens in a social setting, it's definitely different than when dance happens in an impressionistic setting. Like what happens when I kiss the girl and I turn away from her door and everybody on the street is in slow motion because all I'm thinking about is her. Like the camera does that, not usually the dancers on film do that. But there's a world for both. So it's, Love it. Yeah. Well, your bandstand commercial so, sold me the show. It's beautiful, right? It's so unbelievable. Yeah. Did you film that after you done Dirty Dancing? I did, yeah. 
Yeah, because yeah. that, uh, my first time I saw that, I was out of town and I was just like, it's okay, like now I'm really seeing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I love that. Yeah. How do you have time to, with all these projects and you're also a family man? I mean, how are you able to it's do hard. everything? It's hard. I mean, first and foremost, I'm not going to lie, my wife is a superhero. She does so much. She's an extraordinary cook. She's an extraordinary teacher for the kids. And, and so she pulls so much weight. I burn the candle at both ends and in the middle. Like that right now, like I have more downtime than I have had in maybe five years. Like the, the idea of like actually sleeping eight hours and <laughs> not rushing in and out of the gym and eating yeah. a kind bar on the run. Yeah. Like, l- like that's how I'm always living. I'm, I'm always making phone calls during my lunch break. Like I don't have lunch break. You know, I, I, I went through a lot of jobs in the past couple of years where, you know, I'd be in cats rehearsals and then during the lunch break, I'd have to take a conference call for the next project or whatever it is. And, and that's exhausting and it's not easy to, it's easy to not enjoy your life. Right. And my kids are getting grown quick and my daughter's illness was a huge wake up call. And that's also why I work at home now, that when I'm prepping, at least I'm upstairs and they hear the music that I'm working on so it's part of their identity. So like they'll go to see Bandstand, they'll know the parts that I had a hard time choreographing because mm. they heard the same eight counts for eight straight hours. <laughs> you know what I mean? They'll Do they all, come up here and watch? Yeah, they come up here and watch. I kick them out a lot because when I really don't know what I'm doing, I don't want anybody in the room. Mm. But they'll, they'll contribute ideas and they feel like then they know the characters. They know the character as Donnie and they know the character as Corey Cott because they were watching me make Donnie. Yeah with the composers and the writers. It's really amazing to have my kids involved in all of it. You know, it's, it, but it is difficult to do everything. Yeah. Like I'm really tired in a, in a lot of ways. I, a couple weeks ago, it was like two weeks after the show opened, I was staring forward, I needed to return emails. And I was staring forward at the television. And I looked at my wife and she was like, don't be guilty. Like, you're empty. <laughs> you're, you're still empty and you need just to start filling up slowly. And for me, like, I, I love life, as you know, many people do. So, like, I, I get great satisfaction of just making that extra cup of coffee and yeah. just, just staring forward and <laughs> having a cup of coffee, like, or watching, you know, sitting outside at a cafe or something. Like, those are moments that are really important to me. But you're right, I just never... It never ends. Never stops. It never well, stops. up to this point in your career, is there a highlight or is there something that sticks out? Because there's been so many things. I'm looking at two Tonys right there. It's crazy. I mean, there's so many highlights. And, and very soon, before I start to forget, like I need to just open a Word document and start writing. Because there are so many things you know that as performers, you know, that Sunday rehearsal on the Tonys. You know, you do, you do a dress rehearsal with the rest of the Broadway community, and it's like nothing you've ever seen. Oh. It's such an inspiring couple hours. Yeah. We had our Tony luncheon at the Rainbow Room, which is when there's no press, there's no press agents, and it's just you and the other Tony nominees having a fine dinner, like sitting next to Bette Midler, and like I sat next to Kelly O'Hara. Oh my and gosh. It's like, when does that happen? Yeah. It's an unbelievable thing. But you know what? Other moments suck. Like, other moments suck. I choreographed the opening number of Bandstand so many times because I could not get it right. Yeah. And I was miserable and I felt like I was letting people down. And I felt like I felt like I was letting Susan Stroman down, Jerome Robbins down, my cast down. Like all these people who inspired me to make good things when you can't make them. Yeah. It's really hard. And like, like I cry inside a lot and, and I grind my teeth all night long. And, and so the moments, the high moments really are necessary to get through the moments that you torture yourself. But you know, you hit on it, but my family is really important and, and being away from them is really hard. Yeah. And, and so that is one big change. And that's also a reason for my transition into directing and choreographing because I can compartmentalize my work more 
and work on my own more, and then obviously be home more. And you're also going to be starting to write, you said, also yeah, as well. Yeah, that's, that's, that's new, but not new. I, mm. I've always written, it's just never been produced. And so... Yet. Yet. And so what, you know, what I did a lot, even like you say I'm going to do a 45 second class uh, routine, cl- piece of class choreography, I would create the vignette. So character walks into this dark office and he looks behind the desk and I would be choreographing the person behind the desk. But I created, I wrote the vignette in my head and sometimes on paper. And, and so I've always done that in small ways. And then I've experienced in life things that are really inspiring to me, like, like little vistas of this or that. And so I've locked those things away, sometimes writing documents, sometimes keeping photos, sometimes just memorizing those ideas. And so now as I'm writing, I'm writing pieces where I'm just attaching all those vignettes together. Like that character who I saw on a subway once who I think is really interesting. I've held on to him. And why can't he be a character in Paris? You know, because yeah. I know that character well. And so that's sort of what I'm doing is I'm writing pieces that are going to be, when I get the chance to do it, very easy to choreograph. And they're going to be better choreography than I've ever done because I understand their clothing, I understand their faces, I understand their objectives, as opposed to like, oh, this character sings this, what would they do? Like, I know what they do. Yeah. Because I wrote them, you know? And so I'm excited about that. And you know, you think of Bob Fosse or Robbins, and they have this handful of iconic projects. That's what I want to do in my life. Yeah. I want to find an iconic project like in the way that Hamilton was for all of us. Yes. You know, I remember the first time I read a book about Michelangelo, he, he did so few sculptures, so few, because it takes you years of yeah. your life. Michelangelo had to build a road system up a mountain in order to mine the piece of rock to make the Mary, I don't remember what sculpture it was, yeah. Moses. But it took him like a year of his life to design the road system to get the rock to his studio. And then it takes however long of your life to make the sculpture. Yeah. Like those people are iconic, but it's, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great thing to look at them and say, they were willing to do it and they only made these few things. It's okay. You don't have to touch everything. Just find an identity and do it as best as you can do it. And that's what I want to do. I think that is what you're doing. Oh, yeah. I'm going to let you go because you have to get to Bandstand. So if you want, could end this podcast with a song that represents you where you are today, what song would that be? Oh, that's a tough one. You know, it's so interesting. I've been lucky of late to really do autobiographical work. Mm. Like, I, I think maybe that's why Hamilton was good from all of us. That we're all, all of us are sort of Hamilton. Yeah. And Burr at the same time, maybe. But like, rumor it happens is like, my life. Like, I'm doing exactly what I always wanted to do. Involved with people that I've always wanted to be involved with. So that kind of feels good to me. But I have to, every time I see Hamilton and I hear the world, you know, like the world turned upside down, like... That's what my life is. It's just upside down in a great way. In a great way. Well, thank you so yeah. much for this. My Fantastic. Thank, thank you. Two Virginians and an immigrant walk into a room. Diametrically opposed foes. They emerge with a compromise, having open doors that were previously closed. Bros. The immigrant emerges with unprecedented financial power, a system he can shape however he wants. The Virginians emerge with the nation's capital. And here's the pièce de résistance. No one else was in the room where it happened, the room where it happened, the room where it happened. No one else was in the room where it happened, the room where it happened, the room where it happened. No one really knows how the game is played, the art of the trade, how the sausage gets made. We just assume that it happens. But no one else is in the room where it happens. Thomas Clark.
flames. Alexander was on Washington's doorstep one day in distress and disarray. Thomas claims. Alexander said, I've nowhere else to turn. And basically begged me to join the fray. Thomas claims. I approached Madison and said, I know you hate him, but let's hear what he has to say. Thomas claims. Well, I arranged the meeting. I arranged the menu, the venue, the seating. But no one else was in the room where it happened. The room where it happened. The room where it happened. No one else was in the room where it happened. The room where it happened. The room where it happened. No one really knows how the parties get to yes. The pieces that are sacrificed in every game of chess. We just assume that it happens. But no one else is in the room where it happens. Madison is grappling with the fact that not every issue can be settled by committee. Meanwhile, Congress is fighting over where to put the capital. It isn't pretty. Then Jefferson approaches with the dinner and invite, and Madison responds with Virginian insight. Maybe we can solve one problem with another and win the victory for the Southerners. In other words, oh, a quid pro quo. I suppose. Wouldn't you like to work a little closer to home? Actually, I would. Well, I propose the Potomac. And you'll provide him his vote. Well, we'll see how it goes. Let's go. No. What else was in the room where it happened? else has in the room where it happened Alexander Hamilton What did they say to you to get you to sell New York City down the river Alexander Hamilton Did Washington know about the dinner was the presidential pressure to deliver Alexander Hamilton Or did you know even then it doesn't matter where you put the US Capitol Cause we all have the banks we're in the same spot You got more than you gave And I wanted what I got when you got skin in the game you stay in the game but you don't get a win unless you play in the game. Oh, you get love for it, you get hate for it, you get nothing if you wait for it, wait for it, wait. God help and forgive me. I wanna build something that's gonna outlive me. What do you want, girl? What do you want, girl? If you stand for nothing, girl, what do you fall for? I, I wanna be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens. I. Wanna be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens. I wanna be in the room where it happens. I wanna be in the room where it happens. They trade away. We dream of a brand new start. But we dream in the dark for the most part. Dark as a tomb where it happens. I've got to be in the room where it happens. I've got to be I've got to be in the room where it happens. I've got to be in the room where it happens. I gotta be, I gotta be, I gotta be in the room where it happens. Click, boom. Like, because if I see it really clearly, like scene to scene, that means a real writer has to like pay attention to my storyboard instead of writing for themselves. Why don't you consider yourself a real writer? No, that's what I'm saying. So now I'm yeah, oh. finishing. I, I, I wrote a new musical, amazing British composer, and 
and we brought on a book writer. And for two years, I waited and it didn't work. So finally, I took the reins back in my hand. And then last year, I took six months to finish it and work on it. And, and I'm hoping we do it at the public, but it needs one more round of like fixes. So that's what I'm doing for like the next two months is trying to finish that. Nice. And then I'm going to do two treatments, one of which I think I'm going to write completely. And the other, I don't think I have the ability to write. And so I just want to write a treatment enough to woo a composer and then we'll woo a book writer. Mm. How are they inspired? It's just ideas that I've had in my head for a long time. Like things that like for like 10, 15 years, I've just been crunching. One, one idea I actually started like in 1990. Like just, and, and, and the piece is totally different than when I thought of it in 1990, but the, it's set, the, part of the story is set in the time period. It's like set in 1939. Mm. And so the umbrella of the environment is what I wrote like 20 years ago, but the plot is totally different. But I felt like that was a study to figure out the environment. You know oh, that I mean? makes good, yeah. And so now I have a new plot, but it's an environment that I feel like I've researched and yeah. know. So, and then this, this one that's on my board now is the one I'm working on right now. Oh wow, look at that storyboard. It's, that's, not, that's just like a vomit. That's like it's not even storyboarded anymore. It's it, it what last year it was storyboarded like the like the show and now it's just up against the wall. That's the one I'm writing with Kate Nash, this British pop star, set in Paris in the twenties. It's about a Maharaja and all his wives. Oh wow! And, and it's that one I I started. I was on in an airplane and I I used to get architecture magazines and fashion magazines whenever I'd fly because that would like be my detox time and I'd cut pictures out and paste them on my walls you know back at home and yeah stuff. and I read this blurb about this tiara that they were showing at Cartier and it was this blurb about this this real Maharaja and this crazy escapade that happened in Paris in 1928 and it was like unbelievable like the, the one paragraph was like Austin Powers like it was an unbelievable story and I was like that's a musical. And so I wrote an entire musical based on him, but not anything that's literal. So it's just based on him historically in this event that happened in Paris, but my plot never happened. But the mm. event happened. Yeah. So it's cool. It's a beautiful story. Well, you're crazy creative, so... Uh, well, that's what I want to yeah. do. I want to basically, I want to write ballets. Oh. And then figure out how, figure out where narrative can go in it. So like if you see like a Matthew Bourne piece, and there's no speaking, like that's too far for me. And so maybe that means, is there a show where it's just like love letters being read or one person narrating the ballet, or is it five actors? Like this, this other piece that I'm working on, this, it's set in Italy. I think it's gonna be like, f it's one person narrating and then f it's a play with music. And so like five people play all the parts and then the ensemble fleshes everything out. So it's sort of a ballet, but sort of scene work at the same time. So it's all these weird ways of like carrying narrative forward. The thing that I, I, I don't gel with is I don't gel with people speaking and then breaking into dance. Oh, yes. Like I feel like people have to heighten into singing or the dance can live on its own and somebody else can be speaking. Mm. But I can't be like, I love you so much and then I dance about it. I don't know, that's just my own personal taste. Yeah. So that's sort of how all these pieces are working, that narrative still comes at you like a real person speaking, but the whole show is like in ballet form, like, like Hamilton kind of. Yeah. Thing. That's what, uh, I can't wait to uh, talk more about Hamilton, because Hamilton, the way that the ensemble represents the show and yeah. the story was the thing that was so fascinating yeah. to me. it's fascinating. I loved it. The first time I saw it, I only watched the ensemble, and so I was like, <laughs> I can't wait to see yeah. this again. <laughs> And then, attention like I'm supposed to pay attention. I know, because the ensemble was riveting. And then I, 
got a house seat and watched it again. Right? I am actually, yeah. but. Um, yeah. uh, and yeah, so we'll, we'll go back to that. It's good to watch in house seats. It's good to watch all over the place. It's a different show anywhere you sit. Yeah. But it's good to watch in house seats because if you get too close up, you're confused. And if you get too far back, your eye can stray. Yeah. But like in house seats, like you really look, I think, where I'm telling you, where I want you to look. Yeah. So, so we'll start this interview officially.